Our sermon text today is taken from Luke 18, verses 31 to 43. It's a passage about seeing. Specifically, about seeing in relation to the Word of God, in relationship to the work of God, and in relationship to the worship of God. Would you follow along as I read from Luke 18, verses 31 to 43. This is the inspired word of God. Before we read it, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would bless us as we, as we turn to you now, as we look to your word, as we seek to be taught by you, but not just taught in an academic way, taught in a way in which our our heart is shaped and our very being is changed. We ask for nothing less than that here today. And we expect it because you are in the business of changing people. Taking people who are dead and making them alive. Taking people and making them into new creations. May you do that today. Do it through the power of your word. We ask it in the name of the one who is the living word, even Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please do follow along with me now as I read from Luke 18, verses 31 to 43. This is the inspired word of God. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and Hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him, be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, Gave praise to God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In this passage, we do have a passage about seeing, as I mentioned, seeing the word of God, the work of God, and the worship of God. I want to start with the word of God, but kind of start outside of the word of God, in a funny sense, talking about the word of God. I've got... uh, 
uh, a little book here called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And, and it is a, uh, it's, it's really not so much a, a children's Bible, more a children's storybook, a children's book of stories about stories that are in the Bible. But I love the way that it's put together. And I love, I love the impulse behind it and the idea behind it because it really helps us to understand the scriptures better, I think. I'm just going to read to you the very, very introduction to it here. It, it says that some people think of the Bible as a book of rules, and, and that's how a lot of us think of it, probably. It says, and others think it's just a, a book of stories about heroes, you know, people who, who are really good at following God, and we should live our lives like them. It goes on to say, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the others fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. It goes on from there, but I think that communicates the point that I want to make. And that is that, that the whole Bible, all of the Bible, from, from Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament and New, all the different genres of literature we find in the Bible, all speak to one main point. And that main point is Jesus. He is the point of all of Scripture. Oftentimes we look to Scriptures and, and we try to say, well, what, what's this have to say for me? And certainly that's a good exercise to, to apply the Scriptures to our lives. But it's important for us to remember that ultimately the Bible isn't about me. And it isn't about you. The Bible is about Jesus. And so it is that when we look to the Word of God and seeing the Word of God, first we start with a person. A person who in verse 31 is referred to as the Son of Man. It's a phrase that's used, I think, 82 times in the Gospels. The Son of Man. It was Jesus' favorite self-designation. It is how he referred to himself more commonly than anything else. The Son of Man. And it's an Old Testament term, as we just saw moments ago, as we read together from Daniel 7. We see in that passage in Daniel 7 that we just read, the, the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, and all of his power and all of his glory, and he approaches this Son of Man, this mysterious figure, and the most peculiar thing happens. The Son of Man is given glory and given a kingdom and everlasting dominion. Now this is an odd thing. 
for the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Jews. Those, those who, who understood themselves to have one God. That was the most basic creed of the Jewish faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And so, so it was odd that, that God would be giving dominion, giving rule, giving glory unto another. It was necessitated that this, this other must be God himself as well, and that's who Jesus is. We need to understand Jesus was not just some political leader who came along to, to head up some kind of political movement. He wasn't just a member of the, the Jesus Messianic Party looking to be elected. No, he's more than that for sure. And he's not just some great moral teacher or some great moral example. Indeed, he is the best moral teacher, the perfect moral example, but he is far more than that. He is the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in human flesh, God himself. In Philippians 2, we read that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How did this come about? Well, Paul writes just earlier in Philippians 2, that though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be, be clung to. But he emptied himself, taking the very form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of human men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what happened to God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, who eternally existed as God, took on human flesh. He, he submitted to death. Now we might say, well, well wait a second, that, that isn't supposed to happen. It's not right that the perfect holy son of God would die. And in a sense, that's true. It shouldn't happen. It doesn't seem just to him. And yet, there's a sense in which it was absolutely supposed to happen because it was always part of God's plan. And that's the second thing I want to look at under God's word, seeing God's word. God's word is about the person of Jesus Christ, but it's also about his, his plan through Jesus Christ. We see in verse 31, Jesus saying, we're, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. You see, this, this isn't just a plan that Jesus came up with right now as we're heading into these last days and weeks of his life. It's not even something that, that God came up with, you know, somewhat recently or even somewhere along the way, but rather something that God had planned for all of eternity and he had proclaimed to his people through the prophets we see. What did he proclaim? 
Well, that he'd be delivered to the Gentiles. He'd be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed. Why would this happen to this holy Son of God, to this perfect, blameless Son of God? Well, it's because he is taking our place. The wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve. We deserve all of these things. We deserve to be mocked. We deserve to be shamefully treated. We deserve to be spit upon. We deserve to be flogged. We deserve to be put to death. Even if just for one sin. Let's say you had lived a perfect life except for that one day where you had that one sin. Now let's face it, each of us has had at least three sins, right? Far more than three. Far more than 3,000. Far more than three million. Our very essence, apart from Christ, is one of sin. We are born into sin. It is who we are. It is our identity, apart from Christ. And so you can see that the punishment that needed to be paid was an eternal and an infinite punishment. And so it was that it needed to be paid by an eternal and infinite person, and yet, at the same time, a human, one who shared in our humanity. And so Christ is the one who paid that penalty for us, and he promised ahead of time, on the third day he will rise and the fact that God was able to raise Christ from the dead vindicated all that was planned. The plan that he had was proven to be worthwhile. We look back on this and we say, oh, what a wonderful thing. But the disciples didn't understand all of this. It says as much in verse 34, they understood none of these things. The saying was, hidden from them. They didn't grasp what was said. How, how is this possible? I mean, Jesus just laid it all right out there in front of it, and yet they didn't see the truth. How is it that they didn't see the truth? Well, it's because they, they didn't have eyes to see. Now, I say they didn't have eyes to see. What do you mean, Pete? They, they had physical eyes, didn't they? Of course, they had physical eyes. But what I mean when I say they didn't have eyes to see is that they didn't have spiritual sight. They weren't able to understand this. So we kind of understand this, don't we? The idea that somebody can have vision and, and still not see things, right? I mean, I mean, we say this all the time in a baseball game. You know, the umpire calls a game thing wrong. Oh, you know, he's blind. You know, we know he's not blind, but we say he's blind because he's not seeing things the way we think he should be seeing things. He's not seeing things the way we think they really are. We understand that he has vision, but yet we call him blind. And that is how the spiritual state of the disciples was. That's how the spiritual state is for us as well, apart from the work of God. That's the second thing I want to look at is the work of God here. Beginning in verse 35, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. You see, Jesus happens to in his his plan that was put together before the beginning of eternity already prepared a, an illustration here for us. There's this blind man begging by the side of the road. He is physically blind now. His eyes do not function in the way they're supposed to. And he serves as an illustration for us of the spiritual blindness of the disciples and not understanding the truth. So they draw 
near to Jericho, there's this blind man here, and, and we must remember that blind people hold a prominent place in the ministry of Jesus. You'll recall back when he first began his ministry in Luke 4, uh, you know, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he proclaimed when reading from the scroll of Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. And then later on in Luke 7, you'll recall that when John the Baptist had been held in prison, and he was wondering if Jesus was the Messiah. He was starting to waver, starting to doubt a little bit, and he sent messengers to ask, are, are you really the one, Jesus? Are, are you the Messiah? What was it that Jesus sent the messengers back to say to him? He said, go and tell John what you have heard, seen, and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. And so now here's this blind man, physically blind. He hears the crowds going by, and he hears this noise, this rumbling, because there's a large crowd following with Jesus. And, and he says, says what, what, what's going on? What, what is this, this murmur that I hear? What, what's happening? And they tell him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. People knew about Jesus of Nazareth because he had been doing all these wonderful signs and these miracles and he had taught so well and, and he had gathered people around him and so, so he had a name, he had a reputation. And he cries out then, not Jesus of Nazareth, but rather Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, it's interesting to note that the crowds were around him there. It's good for crowds to gather around Jesus. That's what we want, right? <laughs> we want to bring people to Jesus. We'd love that if we, we gathered here every Sunday morning and, and people were, were filling up the whole sanctuary and there were 500 people in here not, not because we could feel good about ourselves, but because we'd be gathering people around Jesus. And that would be a good thing. And yet, people being gathered around Jesus can be a problem at times. It can be counterproductive, and it was on this occasion. Because sometimes the crowd keeps people from Jesus. Those who were in the front rebuked the man, telling him to be silent. I was reminded in thinking about this of a couple of different passages we've covered in Luke. You know, in, in Luke 5, we saw the people who had the friend who was paralyzed, and they brought him to Jesus, but, but we read in Luke 5, 19, finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd. They ultimately went up and cut a hole in the roof, remember, and dropped him in. But there was a crowd there, and the, the crowd caused difficulty for them. They wanted to get to Jesus, and the crowd got in the way. Or perhaps in Luke 8, remember when, when they said, uh, when Jesus' mother and his brothers came to him, and we read, they could not reach him because of the crowd. Or just a couple weeks ago with, with the children, people were bringing their children to Jesus, right? And 
And it, was, it wasn't just the crowd that even the disciples were, were, were kind of keeping them at bay, saying, no, don't, don't bother him. S stay away. And, and this is just kind of a side note, but I was thinking about this week, do we ever do that? And in our desires to bring people to Jesus, do we actually end up keeping people away from Jesus? Perhaps by misrepresenting him, by misrepresenting what he, what he does, we present a false Jesus to people, maybe a health and wealth and prosperity type of Jesus, which, which kind of hides the real Jesus. Or, or perhaps it's through hypocritical living where we say, you know, this is really how you should live your life. These are the things that Jesus calls you to do and you should do this. But then we go over here and do something exactly opposite. Or perhaps it's by being more concerned about our church than about the church. All these things can get in the way of bringing people to Jesus. Well, Jesus knew that these people were going to be here getting in the way. He wasn't surprised by that. He knew the crowd was going to be there. He knew the blind man was going to be there. And he showed up knowing that exactly. And so when the man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they rebuked him. And the man cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus knew that that was going to happen. He was ready for it. Whereas the crowds largely saw Jesus just as a, a great man, a great teacher, uh, a, a wonderful rabbi, a miracle worker perhaps, this man who cried out to Jesus knew him as something more. Recall he used that phrase, son of David. It's a messianic title. You see, he, he's not just looking to Jesus to be a good teacher. He's not just looking to him to, to be some miracle worker. He's looking at him to be the Messiah, the Christ of God. He has seen in Jesus, even though he is blind, something that the crowd at large has failed to see. It's just like back in Luke 9, going back again to Luke, Luke these things we've studied over this past time that we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. Remember in Luke 9 where, where Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, one of the prophets of old is risen maybe. But then he asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. How was it, how was it that this blind man, like Peter, knew the truth. How was it that he saw what the crowds at large failed to see? Well, the same way Peter knew, of course. It doesn't say so in Mark or in Luke, but in Matthew's version of that story, in Matthew 16, Jesus answered Peter and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, that, that's how our eyes are open. That's how we receive spiritual sight. It's not through us being smart enough to figure something out. It's not through us being good enough to work our way through it. It's not just a matter of us doing anything. It's really a matter of God being at work in us. Ultimately, it's not our work. We get no credit in it. 
It is God who has done it. It's all a matter of his grace that gives us eyes to see. And so, so Jesus stops here and commanded the man to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Let me have eyes to see. He's talking now about a physical condition. But this is what we all need to be praying for spiritually. We need to be praying, Lord, give me eyes to see your truth because apart from your working in my life, I am blind to it. And so I need you to work. I think of the, the example of John Newton, who was a slave trader. And he was perfectly content with that, and he saw nothing wrong with it until one day when he comes to know the Lord. He comes to have his eyes opened, as it were, by the Lord. And he knew Jesus as his Savior, and, and he all of a sudden saw this in a different different light and that's why he would later go on to write amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me i once was lost but now i'm found was blind but now i see you see it god's giving him sight giving him vision in a spiritual sense changed everything it changed his whole life and that's what the work of God does. It changes everything. We might be futile in our efforts, but God is far from it. Job 42.2 tells us, I know that God can do all things. No plan of his can be thwarted. Romans 8.28 reminds us so comfortingly. We know that for those who love God, all things, all things, some things, not most things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we can be hopeful in every situation. We can be hopeful no matter how bad the circumstances are. I just read this this morning. Another pastor wrote this, but I really liked it. He said, because the gospel is true, we can trust God's heart even when we cannot see his hand. What a wonderful wonderful comfort that is because the gospel is true we can trust God's heart even when we can't see his hand when we don't see what he's doing how he's working when we feel like we've been forsaken we can know that we have not because God's heart is the heart of a loving father who would never forsake his children who would give anything for his children would give his own self for his children that's precisely what he has done and so, no matter how bad your situation, whether you're Andrew Brunson, who is in a Turkish prison right now, wondering if he'll be released, hoping he'll be released, six months now, held in captivity, he can have hope that God is still at work. And maybe you are facing difficulties right now, facing difficulties that that you don't understand. Maybe, maybe you're saying, Lord, wh why this? Why me? Why, why would I have to endure this? Have you forgotten me? Have you left me? Have you forsaken me? No, he has not. Dear child of God, no, he has not. He is with you, and even when you don't see 
his hand, trust his heart. Finally, we've looked at the first two parts. This third part's going to be a lot quicker. We've seen the word of God, the work of God. Now we look at the worship of God. We think of worship, we tend to think of what we're doing right now. Sunday morning, we gather together, 10 to 11 o'clock. But I want to think beyond that. Verse 43 says, immediately he recovered his sight. And what happened then? What happened then was worship. Immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He followed him. That was the first thing. He followed him. He committed himself to following Jesus. That's the first act of worship. That's, that's the first thing we do is we commit ourselves to following him. We're going to follow after him. We're going to trust in him. We're going to depend upon him. Where he leads us, we will go. We're going to follow him. And that is an act of worship. Second, he was glorifying God. See, that's what our lives should be about. Our lives are, are meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever, as the shorter catechism says. Our lives aren't about us. My life isn't about me. Ultimately, it's about bringing glory to God. And so that needs to be my focus, and that is worship day by day when I glorify God in that way. And then finally, others gave praise to God because of it, and that should be our goal because it's God's goal, that others would give worship to him, that they would praise him on account of what has happened in us. We want to be blessed in order to be a blessing to others. It's an incredible thing, really, what's happened here in this passage. You know, remember back to Luke 9, 51, it's kind of a turning point in the book. It's been a long time since we were back there, but you might recall a passage that said when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he, he has been ever since that point focused on Jerusalem, on the cross, headed that way. He, he didn't head toward Jerusalem and then see that there was a really good movie going on over here, and so he went off to go see that. Or, or didn't stop along the way and say, oh, well, I'm going to go have a nice dinner at this place. No, he's, he's focused on Jerusalem. He's headed there. His face is set. Nothing could stop him. But here he stops. Here he stops before he's reached his destination. Why is it that he stops? Because there is a blind man calling out for mercy. And I tell you, dear brothers and sisters, that he stops today for those who cry out for mercy. If you find yourself today in need of him and you call out to him, he will not ignore your cries. He will not pass you by he will respond to your cries for mercy. And if you have cried out to him, and, and he has responded to your cries for mercy, and you have experienced 
that love and that grace. And he invites you to his table. He invites you to his table today to commune with him and with others, with the body of Christ, and to be nourished spiritually. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So this meal is placed out in front of us. It's here for us to partake of. But it's for those who trust in Christ Jesus, those who have cried out to him, those who know him as their Savior. And so, let us take a moment now, if you could pull out your bulletins. We're going to, before we partake of this meal, share in an affirmation of faith, proclaiming our trust in him. It's the words of the Apostles' Creed. It's been shared by Christians throughout the centuries. We're bound together not only with one another as we share in these words, but bound together with them. Let's read these words together. And may these words express our own hearts. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.